I'm a big fan of reading and I tend to gravitate to books about adventure. I especially love kids' books about adventure. I remember being a little girl and loving the book where the wild things are, pretending I was Max, the main character, and that my bedroom was a forest with an ocean right where my bed was. Does anybody have like good imagination? Do you guys play pretend games after school? Yes, sometimes. Yes. You know what sometimes. I play? I literally play I'm on a scavenger hunt and there are big tigers. Or I play that I'm an agent trying to protect the city. But the thing is, there's a problem every single day. And sometimes there's no problem, but we have to figure it out. That is so cool. And I bet you like a lot of female superheroes. Yes. Did you watch Wonder Woman? Yeah. How do you guess? Wonder Woman is like the best. There's some cool girls in this it's school. The best. I play the ground is lava with my sister. <laughs> How do you play that game? Um, well, like you try to go on like benches and playgrounds, and you can't touch the ground because it's. I love that game. I play that all the time. This is why I'm really excited to have on Steve Bramucci, a travel writer and kids adventure author, which is a job. I always wanted, and I think a lot of people would too. Steve had an active imagination as a kid and a desire to be outside on rope swings or even just the local playground swing ever since he can remember. As an adult, he's continued to live his childhood fantasies by traveling around the world on assignment for magazines and now using the power of storytelling by writing kids' adventure books to inspire the next generation of adventurers and readers. If you love kids, books, or adventure, this is your episode. Hello, friend. Are you ready for a dazzling tale of grand adventure? A tale of sword fights and disguises, of pirates and stolen relics? If not, you should scramble up the moss-covered rocks of a towering waterfall and fling this book into a piranha-infested river. Ronald Zupan won't allow a single unadventurous spirit to touch these pages. I mean that. Just feast your eyes on my swashbuckling mustache. Isn't this the look of an 11-year-old who demands to be taken seriously? I am Ronald Zupan, the only son of Francisco and Helen Zupan, and from the moment I was born, I've been nothing short of spectacular. Want proof? When I was just one year old, a seven-foot-long king cobra slithered across my bedroom floor and wound his way into my crib. Fact, that king cobra is the most venomous snake known to man. I'm Shelby Stanger, and this is Wild Ideas Worth Living. I met Steve over a decade ago when I was living in Laguna Beach. He used to surf the same break I did, and at the time he was writing for Nat Geo, and even then he told me he was going to be a famous children's author. As a young kid, Steve struggled with ADD, but he was able to focus most when he spent time playing outside or reading books about his favorite subjects, which were travel and adventure. So we met up this February at an elementary school in Irvine, California, which is in Orange County, just south of Los Angeles. Steve, who is now a father himself, was giving a presentation to a few hundred third through fifth graders to talk about his book, which is called The Danger Gang and the Pirates of Borneo. He was also there to talk about how impactful adventuring and reading can be. How did adventure help you as a kid? I think, you know, as I say in my speech, every brain works differently. And for me, my brain was driven to distraction to such a dramatic degree that I remember like 
my whole childhood was dominated by uh, whenever I would see the books about attention deficit disorder sitting on my mom's nightstand, I would know that I had kind of been on a bit of a jag lately, right? That I was off track. Um, but being outdoors was the medication for me. That was the one. And that was where the world kind of, as I like to say, telescoped and, and things felt a little more narrow. So even now, like I, I rarely travel, no matter where I go, I rarely travel with my cell phone. I travel the world very rarely with a camera, which I'm sure has made me miss out on incredible opportunities, but I'm usually just like me and my body and that's it. Um, because I need to, I, I need to focus on the moment and travel and adventure is the place where that's the easiest for me. That's incredible. So this first book, The Danger Gang, I remember when you started writing it. And I remember when I met you, you had all these books of Tom Sawyer, Huck Finn, yeah. and you, you admired them so much, mm. these adventure books. Yeah, I think, um, you know, like I say in my talk, I have always had that sort of brain that is transportive and brings me someplace. And I think those books always brought me off to a different place. Mark Twain, you know, for people who don't know, is was America's most famous travel writer before he ever wrote novels. And so he he does so well with description and his his books really carry you away. And that that transformative effect of literature is really important to me. It's really been an inspiration for me. So let's go to Ronald Zupin. So your first character is this is this kind of excited, adventurous young man. Right, adventurous and um, and so excited by the world that sometimes he can't slow down enough to see it clearly. So so for example, in that excerpt that I read, him saying fact. The King Cobra is the most poisonous snake known to man. I knew I needed, I needed someone to check and balance him. And so later in the chapter, his butler comes in and every chapter, his butler gives some corrections. And his butler in this case said like, oh, it's not actually the most poisonous snake known to man. It's fourth most poisonous. But the snake that Ronald had had been defanged when he was just a boy. And so there's this, um, this constant checks and balances. I think I get so hyped and just so gassed up on life sometimes that I need people to balance me out and say like, let's make sure that we're living also in the real world and, you know, maybe pay your bills this month or whatever. Well, I remember I related to you because you said as a kid, you were pretty hyperactive and now yeah. there's a label for that, but sure. I, yeah. I mean, I think there is a label for it and, and you'll notice in my speech that I don't actually use it. Um, I think that's great. But I simply talk about how brains work differently and, and my brain worked differently. And I think like so many um, people like you and I, I mean, you're, you're the person I always go to who does such a good job of integrating the outdoors into every second of your daily life. I think nature is a good respite from that. For someone who gets easily distracted, the world telescopes when we're outdoors. So for me, um, you know, whether I'm surfing or hiking or rock climbing or whatever, I find that, that that world that is constantly creeping into my consciousness and making me kind of look in different directions all of a sudden is, is incredibly focused. That's why I like it so much. So basically, you're, you were kind of ADD as a kid, but when you're in the outdoors or immersed in a book, you could focus. I felt like I could lock in a little bit. And I've trained myself, you know, as a writer um, to do that also. I, you know, I, I work with giant headphones on where you think I'd be blasting music, but there's nothing playing and I have earplugs underneath the headphones. I'm just like, yeah, I mean, I, I have to do a lot of work to help myself focus, but it's worth it to me because, because I, I like that, um, what comes out when I'm focused. Steve worked as an elementary school teacher himself between his travels and his magazine writing assignments. 
He's really good with kids and get on their level fast. I especially love the way he explains to students how challenging it was for him to focus when he was their age without explicitly using the label ADD. As a bonus, he makes them laugh the whole time. One of my favorite things in all of life is that all of our brains work differently. In fact, that's what most of my presentation is about, is the fact that all of our brains work differently and a little bit of insight into my weird brain, right? But one thing about me, and some of you might relate with this and some of you might not, and both ways are perfectly okay, but one thing about me is that ever since I was a kid, I have had a hard time concentrating and staying focused on one thing caused me a lot of problems when I was super young. I had to really, really practice. And I had to learn and do things to make sure that I could stay focused. As an adult, I'm pretty good because I've practiced so hard. But I'll tell you, sometimes people get excited in presentations and I get distracted. My brain doesn't do a good job filtering it out. And so I'll give you an example of something we want to try to avoid. Sometimes someone will come over. It's always a first grader or a kindergartner the great thing about them is they haven't realized how their knees work yet all the way, so they walk over to me very intense, like this. Steve! And I'm like, what? This is exciting. What are we talking about? I have to tell you something! What's, what's the thing? They say, I got a pet goldfish! And I love it! Okay, and that's great, that's great, that's great. The problem with how my brain works is that at that exact same moment, a different kid walks over from here, also a kindergartner, also figuring out how their knees work. <laughs> Steve! I'm like, what? What? Gotta tell you something! So exciting, what is it? I had a peanut butter and jelly sandwich for lunch, it was delicious! Which is great, which is great. But here's the problem. Here's one wrinkle, one complication with how my particular brain works. I'm excited to hear all of that. I like hearing pieces of people's lives. But if two people do it at the same time, I get discombobulated, I get confused. I look over at this person and I say, I'm so excited. I can't wait to hear about your pet sandwich. <laughs> That's okay. That's not a big deal. Friendships can get through that sort of miscommunication, but I turn over to this person and I say, I can't wait to eat your goldfish. That's a catastrophe. So this is my one request. Please don't talk while I'm talking because I, I really will get discombobulated and distracted. So we're gonna take those questions, watch. Question comes into your brain. The way it works, the synapses start to fire, okay? It's electric, it feels good. Your hand transmits a message from your brain. I have to put my hand up, I can't wait to say my question, but then what you're gonna do, because we're doing a one hour talk and we're gonna have questions at the end, you're gonna go, it's like a rocket ship, but boom, into your pocket. <laughs> and you're gonna tuck it there, and it's just gonna stay till the end, and I promise to you, the clock is right here, so I promise I will get to questions, so I promise. Aside from writing kids' books, Steve is a dad and husband who makes a living as a travel writer for publications like Nat Geo, Outside Magazine, Uproxx, which is spelled U-P-R-O-X-X, -X, and more. It's a really fun and rewarding job, but it's not an easy way to make a living. 
So I asked Steve how he makes it work. You also love teaching kids and you're really good with them. You just had this very natural way with them. Yeah. How, why? I think um, I think my brain goes to that place more. I, I think my brain is very easy to understand the thought process of a child. Maybe sometimes to my detriment, right? Maybe sometimes um, makes me inconsiderate to adults. Um, but it, it's very easy for me to understand the fears and joys of childhood. And it helps me a lot when I'm on the road. Because if someone, you know, came up to me and said, okay, you know, you have to be proud of one thing. I would say the one thing that I'm truly proud of is when I'm out in the world, everything to me feels very brand new. So when I go surfing and I'm at a new break or when I go hiking and I'm at a new a new peak, the world feels brand new to me. And there's nothing that's taken for granted, whether it's the construction of rocks or the, the shape of a wave. And that's, truthfully, in the world, that's probably the thing I'm most proud of on this planet. <laughs> um, so uh, kids really connect with that in the sense that, like, they, they're they the same way. They, they lock in on things and go, like, wow, this feels new, and I'm noticing it, and I'm clocking it. I'm, I'm really, where adults, I think, we don't clock it. Instead, our brains go, like, oh, this is kind of like this other thing I did. You know, I think you're also good at taking things that are old and making them new. For example, just like you said, when you're a kid, you jump off curbs and they weren't curbs. They were like right. snake boats. And just a little a little girl asked her what they like to do for fun. And she's like, I like to play hot lava. Yeah. And I was like, oh, yeah, we're like everything underneath you is hot lava and you can't jump on the lava and you have to stay on the couches and whatever's above the lava. Yeah. You did that all the time as a kid. Yeah, that was uh, that was like the game, right? And, and who knows how we even... I don't remember that from any TV show when we were kids or any books, but it's in us. There's this natural desire in us between like, am I gotten? You know, like it's like tag, right? Am I it? Did I get gotten by the hot lava? Uh, or am I still am I still afloat? So when you were a little kid, did you always want to be a children's author? I, I don't think I knew that. I, I thought I wanted to, to swing on rope swings professionally. I wanted, to, I wanted to go on adventures professionally. I saw the cover of a Nat Geo book that had, um, it was like a Nat Geo reader, which, which I write for them these days. And it had a Komodo dragon on the cover. And I saw that. And How old I, were you? I was second grade, I think. Just like I, I was seven. like, boom, that's, yeah, seven years old. That's what I want to do. That's a, that is a dream. Um, I didn't think of it like I want to write those. I thought I just want to go where that is, right? So funny. I was the same way. I just wanted to go on surf trips, so I figured yeah. a way to write about them. Yeah, and I, I mean, you've obviously done a marvelous job with that, and that's the process. That's the goal is we find a way to do the things that we love the most. You know, you heard in that speech that there was a young woman who said like, well, how did you know you liked writing? And I described that sensation of what it feels like for me to write. And I think there is a generation of people who say to themselves like, oh, this feels really good. Now let's chase that more. And I think that's what we do in the outdoors, right? You see people who are so incredibly passionate about surfing or skateboarding or whatever their thing is. And they start to gear up and they start to get new equipment and they go to new places. And all they are really saying is like, I feel good. My body feels good when I am doing this thing. How did you first get into it and know this could be a career? Because when I met you, you were like freelancing, which right. I was too, and it was hard. Yeah, it is a hard, it's a hard world. I think um, the, the shortest explanation I have that I could say, you know, with an adult that I don't really say with kids is adult books are often about 
middle class angst and bill paying and and I get the place in the world for that. It's just those aren't the stories I want to tell. Frankly, they're not the stories I want to read. Not that I don't think that's a valid genre of like the American fiction story of of how hard it is to make a way in the world is certainly a valid form, right? But the truly I enjoy reading books about adventure more. And those are more often written in, you know, in the children's book space. Tell me what other authors influenced you a lot as a kid. I know you said Mark Twain. Oh, yeah. Mark. So Mark Twain is huge. There was an author named Robert Newton Peck, who um, I don't hear people talk a lot about a lot these days, but he had this series of books called Soup about like country living and a boy named Soup trying to think of like the other biggest influences. I taught Shakespeare for a while and I do think like one thing that people don't recognize about Shakespeare is how much love for mayhem and kind of madcap um, hysteria he had. People take him so seriously that they forget that he was trying to also entertain people who had paid the bare minimum to go to these shows. And so I, I like Shakespeare. There's so many. So you like comedy, mischief, and adventure. I do. Like that's my sweet spot. Comedy, mischief, and and some degree of like unfolding a mystery or detecting something. I loved Dennis the Menace as a kid. Yeah. If honestly, if you put me on the spot and said, what do you think is the most important um, children's property of the past hundred years for moving forward our way of, of thinking about children, right? Like, you know, we we understand now, I think better than ever, that children are just not the precious little kitty witties, right? They have incredibly rich and detailed mindscapes. Um, and, and those are complicated and nuanced. If you were to ask me, what do I think is the best thing in the past hundred years for evolving how we understand the, the patterns and thought processes of children, I would tell you Calvin and Hobbes was a huge influence on me, but also like, I believe such an important project out in the world. After going to college in Oregon, Steve got an amazing opportunity to write travel pieces for a local magazine in Southern California. With plans already in motion to hit the road for the year, he pitched some ideas, combined them with press trips and his own budget, and traveled all over the world. That's not the most easy way to make a living. No, no. And and so between all those trips, I was teaching, right? So okay. I would go... I. I saved up a lot of money when I was, you know, 24 years old and I traveled for 14 months straight and just you, you, that first big trip that any adventurer takes is always just like, I have to see what's out there and where I want to go back. Where'd you go? So uh, one thing in travel like that has always kind of, tr I've tried to make my brand is trying to unlock what is the right way to travel in this part of the world. So like, for example, in East Africa, I wanted to go on safari. I um, bought a really cheap but usable four-wheel drive, and I drove myself on safari for three months through East Africa. And because I was driving myself and I was self-guided, not only did I get a lot of respect from the other guides and a lot of friendliness and warmth from them, but I was also able to really slow down and spend time with animals. I didn't have an itinerary. I wasn't checking off boxes. And this is right after you graduated college? two, three years after, after I had saved some money. And you're writing for Coast Magazine. Writing a column for Coast Magazine. At that time, the internet, I would go into internet cafes. So I was traveling around the world and, and doing that. The most notable of all of these was that I bought a Vietnamese Zampan, which is a small canal boat. And it's typically used by elderly women to take ferry people to and from different sides of the canals that, that shoot off of the Mekong Delta. And so me rowing in one... For your listeners, 
I was six foot two, a white guy. And, and it was really kind of like really notable for people because not only was I, was I, you know, clearly not from there, but I was also, you know, someone who was using a traditional form of getting around, which is the Zampan. And I was taking it in the big river, which I realized later was insane. Um, and I, I hadn't done any research and I hadn't planned this trip at all. And I got into the boat and I, I bought it from a woman who I was using a translator who I had met at my hostel and, um, the elderly woman who sold it to me, I looked at the boat and the, the most worn thing in the whole boat I remember was the bailing pan to take water out from inside of it. And I was like, if that bailing pan is that worn out, it's been used a lot. And so I tried to negotiate a little bit. I said, can she do 50? And she said in Vietnamese to my translator, he is crazy. This is a terrible idea. If he wants it so badly, he'll pay exactly what I ask. And she was 100% right. And I paid exactly what she asked. And then I took my boat and I was like, oh, this is going to be so good. I had some cookies. I had uh, a copy of Huckleberry Finn. I was like, I'm going to be off on the big river. And I start paddling and immediately it starts ripping me upstream back towards Cambodia. And I couldn't figure it out. (laughs) I realized eventually that the Mekong Delta is so giant that it's actually tidal. So it runs upstream for eight hours and downstream for eight hours. And, and even at the pretty far up, I was, I, by that point, I was, two, you know, 200 miles inland of Ho Chi Minh City. Uh, I wasn't at the shore, but it was still tidal because it's so wide. So I was running upstream and these paddles that I had were like pool cues. And I hadn't figured out the traditional way that the Vietnamese women do, which is stand up rowing. They row standing up. It's really, it looks really neat. I hadn't figured it out yet. And I realized that my best bet was to throw my anchor cable to people and their big boats would drag me. And because I was, I stood out so much on this traditional vessel uh, and clearly being, you know, from a foreign land, everyone picked me up. And they would bring me down the river and I spent days and days just essentially hitchhiking on my little tiny boat down the Mekong Delta. Well, that sounds so nice. And you probably just learned so much about the kindness of humans. Sure. I mean, I think that's what you always see when you travel that you don't anticipate, right? Is you, you find people being so shockingly kind and you want to... You want to show your gratitude in any way you can. I brought along cookies with me. That's the only thing I could figure out. I didn't have anything to offer, really. I didn't speak the language. I, did. I just couldn't even wrap my tongue around thank you in Vietnamese. Like, I just couldn't get it right. I had been living in Thailand. I had, I, you know, I, I could function in Thai. But when I got to Vietnam, I just couldn't do it. So I gave people cookies, and they would give me a ride down river. And because everyone was constantly flagging me, you know, the elderly women in the small villages rowing through these canals would want to see that I could do the stand-up rowing. So they'd flag me and they'd wave me. And because of that, the big downriver boats would kind of point to me like I was an interesting novelty. And I wrote a story about that. And it got immediately grabbed and anthologized in a travel book. And it was, it was travel and it was humor and it was adventure and it was these three things I liked. And I was like, oh, now there might be, there might be a new gear here. There might be something I can really do here that's significant. So you were writing for these glossy magazines, traveling around the world. Sure. And then there was this time one day where you're like, I'm going to go back to school and I'm going to be a kid's author. Yeah. Um, I got a couple breaks. I, I won a couple awards for the first 10 pages or the first 20 pages at different conferences and things like that of my books. 
And I was winning these awards and I was, I, I was having these opportunities and then I, I wasn't able to do the complete book. Mm. I just somehow couldn't put it together. And I, I'm a big believer in graduate school if you really know what you want to do. And I'm not a believer in, in any sort of schooling if you don't yet know what you want to do. I'm not a believer in going to college right out of high school if you don't know what you're interested in. But I was, I was already by this point late into my 20s and I knew that this was a dream of mine and I knew I needed... <laughs> Awesome. This is going to sound that, really cool. That'll be the last one. I knew I, 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 so I was late in my twenties and I knew this was a dream of mine and I knew I needed new tools, right? Every time you talk about writing, you will meet someone and I find them to be the most obnoxious, like brand of writers, right? You will meet some writer who says like writing can't be taught, which is, it goes to show you the, the egos of us writers, because if writing can't be taught, it's literally the only thing in the history of human existence that can't be taught, right? Like you could teach someone how to operate on the human brain. If you couldn't teach someone how to put a nice sentence together, but you could teach something, someone how to operate on the human brain, that would be an anomaly that would have books written about it. And it's not. Of course, you can teach people how to write. And I needed, I needed new tools. So I went to graduate school. Uh, it was really expensive. I leveraged my future. I'm paying those loans right now. Um, but I came out and I, I sold a book pretty quickly after graduate school. It was a two book deal and, and we're signing up the third book now. Awesome. So that's exciting. And so this is Ronald Zupin's third book you're writing now. So Ronald Zupin is, is he's paused out in the world right now for a little bit and we're starting a new series, um, that takes place in Oregon, which is really good for me because it's rainy and I've, I've wanted to get back to the Oregon rain. I've wanted to be back in that space. From the jungles of Madagascar. From the jungles. Yeah. The first book, I, it's people always ask like, why did you decide to set your book in Borneo? And I have spent so much time in jungles and I really like jungles. I like that, um, how I feel when I'm walking through a jungle. I like having a machete and slashing through greenery and, and, um, you know, people ask why. And, and I knew that I could write jungles. Well, I know that I can word wise. Yeah. I know I can capture that. I'm the type of writer. I want the book to play like a movie in your head. Mm -hmm. And I knew that I could, I could capture jungles. So, uh, hopefully I did that, you know, but that's why it started out there. So, okay. You've got a wife, a kid. Tell us a little bit about your other day job. Uh, so I'm the travel and adventure editor at uprocks.com which is so travel, food, and adventure. And you write a lot about food. I write a lot about food. Uh, you, I, you just can't as a travel writer because it's such a connector. Food is such a connector. So you can't not be a food writer at some point. Write a lot about food, a lot about travel. And Didn't you once interview Anthony Bourdain? Yeah, he was, he was a great help to me a couple different times. So yeah, I, I write about food. I write about travel. And then I've started to write a little bit about social justice because we just end up seeing that the world can continually, that, that humans can continually treat each other better. And travel is such an incredible machine for that, right? I do believe that, you know, everything Mark Twain, my hero, said about travel and its ability to help knock down barriers between humans. And because of that, I have tried to kind of um, help be part of social justice conversations like through my writing. Um about ecology, about, about things that really touch on the balance between social justice and, and, um, and the world we live in, right? So sometimes it's about ecology. Sometimes it's about the wealth gap. Sometimes it's about, you know, different conversations about, about the gun conversation. That's where it really all started was as a travel writer, I was asked to react to the, the Paris 
attacks a couple years ago. And, and so I, I did kind of move into that space about talking about social justice too. And it comes from this, this place of deep love for the world. Um, and sometimes, you know, when you're talking about social justice, you're going to meet a lot of people who disagree with your stance on things. But ultimately, you know, it comes from my desire to be a part of, of living in a world where we treat one another better. And as a parent, has that just made you care even more? I think it has. I think, I think it's also like reignited my love for travel and seeing the world constantly, seeing the world through the eyes of this kid who he's one, one year old and, and five months now. And he has been to Australia for months at a time. He's been to Italy, which is my family homeland. He's going to Dominica in the Caribbean pretty soon here. So he's seen a little bit of the world. Coming up, we talk to Steve about where he gets the ideas for his stories, how he deals with self-doubt as a writer, and why storytelling is so important to him. But first, a little advice from Steve about dental hygiene and pirates. Arg. Ever since I was a boy, I have been particularly interested in adventure. And I have not been able to find any type of adventurer more bold than pirates. I like pirates because they are scallywags. The only thing I do not like about pirates is that they have terrible breath. (laughs) Dental hygiene is not really important in the pirate community. They didn't floss very much. If you ever are getting pressured by your parents to brush and floss your teeth, and you're being resistant, just remember that if you wake up one day with pirate teeth, you are only going to have that one career path in front of you. You're going to wake up, they're going to be like, you have some pirate breath, and you're going to be like, okay, I guess I have to go be a pirate. (laughs) So if you want options, you got to floss. That's the number one most important thing I've said so far today. (laughs) REI Co-op asks, what does nothing sound like? REI Co-op, helping you answer your outside questions outside. Find out at REI.com. What kind of adventures do you guys like to go on? Fun ones. Exciting ones. You guys seem like you're really active and like to play a lot of sports. Is that true? Yeah. What sports do you guys play? Oh my gosh, basketball, club basketball, sparks, yes. Soccer? Um, I like to play tennis with my dad and go skiing. Oh, cool. Swimming, soccer, and volleyball. (laughs) Soccer, being a goalie. What are your favorite books? I'm just going to go around and we're going to say our favorite books. Scat. The Land of Stories, book three. Um, Graphic novels. Harry Potter. He's got one. Danger Gang. Dirk Tires, number three. Zia. Zia. Definitely. Island uh, of the Blue Dolphins. Uh, Keeper of Lost Cities. The characters in Steve's stories are complex, so much that you can't help but wonder where he comes up with them. The answer? Inspiration from real life with a little dose of fantasy thrown in for good measure. How did you come up with the story for your book? That's, you know, it's so funny that you asked that because the truth is like, as you saw in my presentation, the number one thing that every kid asks is like, where do your ideas come from? 
And that was the same for me, right? Is, is, you know, that's what my presentation was really about. Where do my ideas come from? And you'll see that most of the things in the book, because it was the first book I was getting out are planted from inside my head. You know, there are things that were planted when I was a child. I, I was allergic to cats and dogs and, and I had reptiles. And so the boy has a reptile as a pet. I like to dress up and the boy constantly throughout the book wears a fake mustache. You know, I took things that I knew about myself and I extremified them to make them what I thought was more funny. Hopefully readers think is more funny too. Yeah. Uh, and then, and to create some balance, then I gave the boy this butler who kind of gives him some checks and balances uh, and a best friend who is named after uh, my cousin and, you know, used to give me balances. So uh, yeah, I think the idea in a way comes from, it's kind of a remix of my childhood in some ways. And then, and then, you know, I wanted to have pirates. So the boy's parents are abducted by pirates as you know, happens to all of us when we're kids, you know, all of our parents get abducted by pirates from time to time. And <laughs> I think the great thing about adventure in some of your books is it's like the great equalizer. Any kid can yeah. relate. Yeah. Yeah, you can. I mean, I think that it, and I think that it can it can put you outside of yourself too, right? The children's fiction has done such a good job over the past couple of years with this beautiful, achingly painful and beautiful um, sense of realism. But that's just not who I am as, a, as an author. I like the fantastical. I like the absurd. Um, you know, if you pitched my book in a sentence to someone, you would be like, a boy and his pet king cobra and his butler and his best friend go to rescue his parents from pirates in Borneo. They meet fruit-throwing orangutans, and, and they crash a plane, and they, you know, battle scalawags. And, you know, it, it's obviously fantastical. It's in that realm. You said something which I thought was really cool to the kids. You said, you know, even, you know, ugly humans get a bad rep in the world. It's hard if yeah. you look different today. And this, this translates down to the animal kingdom as well. Yeah, there are studies and it's easily measurable that mammals that resemble humans get a lot more money spent on them to protect them than reptiles or amphibians or animals like that. I mean, the most easily referenceable one of these is sharks, right? There have been shark populations that have been pushed to the absolute brink because they're something that humans actually have a huge amount of dissonance with. We, we feel a lot of fear around sharks. And I, I think... I mean, I'm going to go real deep here. Okay. I'm going to go for the loyal deep tissue podcast listeners. We have to decide as a culture whether or not we truly want to protect animals. And, and why that's a real question is this. Species die all the time. And species die because of other species all the time. So on one hand, we can prove very easily that humans are pushing more species to the brink of extinction faster than any other species has done to any other species. You know, we know that, right? But at the same time, we don't know that that's not the natural way of things. We don't know that that's not the natural order of things. That would still fall within the constraint of Darwin's survival of the fittest. So we really have to think about it. And why do we want to have compassion towards animals? And why do we want to essentially undo some of the damage we've done to their habitats. And for me, the answer comes from a sense of, of care for them. And I mean that in the simplest, most straightforward way, which is I think they're cool. I think they're cool and I like them around and I would like it less if they weren't around. And for me, that's a pretty valid reason to protect animals. 
One of the coolest things about writing is that you can take things from inside your mind and you could remix them and you can twist them up if you want, but you can also simply take them directly as they are. My best friend when I was young was my cousin. Her name is Julianne Sato. And she had, her grandfather had come straight from Japan and was very traditional, and I liked him a lot. I interviewed him for a big school project. So in my book, I made a character named Julianne Sato, whose grandfather is straight from, has come straight from Japan. It was great. You could just take your friends and put them right into books. <laughs> and then they feel famous, and they love you, and the next time you go out to dinner, they treat. That's really the point of the talk. <laughs> Was it hard to focus to finish a book that's that complex in terms of characters? I think for me, there's always one thing that can power an idea through to the ending, right? Whether I'm writing an article or whether I'm writing a book, there, there's one thing that happens. And in this, in this book, you know, I, I needed at that point to get my first book out so bad. So the theme of this book is really about a boy who needs to, to have his first adventure. He wants to have his first big adventure. His parents are abducted by pirates and he realizes like, this is my chance, right? So he's really just, it's, it's a direct amalgam for me, an overexcitable, you know, 30 something trying to get his first book out. And in the second book, the boy is afraid of the second adventure slump which is just like me, the author, being afraid of the second novel slump and not wanting people to, not wanting it to fall flat. So it's, it's actually like I, I really just use these books in this case as a pretty direct amalgam of, of who I am and what I believe in. So I love that you suffer from, I don't love this, but I think everybody here listening relates to this self-doubt and this fear of oh, yeah. failure, not being accepted and not being legit. How do you deal with that? I mean, it confronts us constantly, right? Like next week or, or whenever this comes out, I'm going to be able to tweet that I was on this really prominent adventure podcast. And the last person who was on it was, you know, an Oscar nominated film director. And now I'm in that company, right? That's really cool. At the same time, there's this constant fear of like, oh, when that Oscar-nominated film director listens to my episode, he might not think it was as cool or he might be like, wow, you know, whatever. And I, I think that that's so natural. Like right now, you know, I'm a, I'm a travel and adventure editor at a really big website. I travel around the world. I go on adventures. I have, you know, three books out plus six that are anthologized. And I will tell you that like I, I still feel very tiny and I have fear constantly about being a fraud and not being real and not being um, as big as I long to be or not maximizing my own talent or not taking advantage of the opportunities given to me. It, it doesn't seem to ever go away. And the answers I know for it are the answers I, I understand for self-doubt are the same answers I have anytime I feel like, you know, just generally low, which is I write. I can write through my self-doubt. I get out in the water. I can surf through my self-doubt. I exercise until my legs feel like jelly. I can exercise through my self-doubt. Uh, th- uh, those are pretty much it, right? <laughs> like those are, those are the keys. Those are the secrets. Um, now I have a, a son. I can play with my son through my self-doubt to, to some degree. But, you know, I think I don't know that that voice ever goes away. I don't know. I mean, we'd have to ask Jimmy Chin or Cheryl Strait or, or all these people who are so prominent. But I would imagine at this point I am in my career – I would imagine that I'm far enough up the mountaintop where I can, where I can look up and go, oh, it probably never goes away. 
Like it probably doesn't disappear. I don't know. I think, I think it goes away at times. I mean, for me, I'm just give less Fs. No, <laughs> I don't good know. for you. I want to give less Fs. But I've just had to because I think having vitiligo has made me just give less Fs. Yeah. Something on my face. And I'm just like, well, I just don't care as much. What do you like best about being an author? I think what I like best, well, I, I like the writing, truthfully. That's I, good. The moment of writing, here's what I believe. I was in graduate school and I'm always a person um, who likes to tell people how I feel about them. I like to tell them when I'm grateful. I like to tell them what I, you know, that I appreciate them. And I had a teacher and she had written a book that I liked and she was also my direct professor. And I said, hey, is it weird if I tell you I really liked your book? And she, she was such an elegant woman. And she said, uh, there is not enough credit in the life of an artist where I am going to turn some away. And I loved that. And I feel very similarly in the sense that I don't know if writing wasn't fun for me. I don't know if the whole process would be worth it. There is, there is pain in this process. There's rejection and there's people passing on things that you love and there's struggling financially and there's, there's waking up at, at 6 a.m. to start writing because your day job starts at, at 8 a.m. or whatever. I don't know that it would be worth it to me. In fact, I don't know if it would. I'll tell you, I have my biggest dream in the world is to go into a signing and <laughs> that during the signing that the bookseller would have to like wave her arms and there'd be like this line stretching out the door and she had this is so ridiculous. Right. And she would go, uh, sorry everyone, but Steve is only contracted to stay till 10 o'clock at night. He's just not going to be able to sign all your books. And then that I would like stand up on my chair and go, wait, I will stay. I'll stay as long as it takes. <laughs> And then people would like cheer. And then, and I'll tell you that little imagining is so ridiculous and obviously it's hyperbolic and, and is certainly not like my current life experience, but that, that does like power me in a way. And if I didn't get to have those little daydreams, I don't know that it would all be worth it. Just like, just like as a traveler, if you don't get to have these fantastical visions of what you're going to see. If you don't get to think of yourself as Indiana Jones, as you're climbing up the side of a, of a, you know, pyramid or a, you know, something like that. I don't know that it's worth it for me. The imaginary world is a big part of what makes living exciting. In addition to hanging out with famous surfers, being a writer has also led Steve to some wild adventures, like hanging out with Komodo dragons, which, by the way, can kill you. Raise your hand if you know what animal that is. Yes. It's a Komodo dragon. It's a Komodo dragon. When I was a kid, I saw a book by National Geographic, and I slammed my finger on the cover, and I said, one day, I want to go and see a Komodo dragon in the wild small world and dreams do work out because not only do I write for National Geographic, but I went to see a Komodo dragon in the wild. I stayed with Komodo dragons for about nine days. And I will tell you something, staying with a Komodo dragon for nine days is exactly eight days too long. It, it was too much Komodo dragon. Here's why. Now, there's going to be a little acting part of this presentation. You need to be ready for it. 
The craziest thing about Komodo dragons, and this is truly wild, I want you to slow down and think about this. They can smell blood for eight miles. That means, and I know this for a fact, I know the distance for a fact because I just drove it today and I checked it on my phone. We are exactly eight miles from my house, which is in Laguna Beach. That means that if I was in downtown Laguna Beach, now you are all no longer yourselves. You are Komodo dragons. You've had such good posture during my speech, but I want your posture to get a little worse right now because Komodo dragons don't have such good posture. Now, when I cut myself, you're going to smell the blood eight miles away, and you're going to go like this. And you're going to look hungry. Oh, that's good. Okay. So here's Steve. He's downtown in Laguna Beach. He's walking around. It's a beautiful, sunny day. I'm really enjoying myself today in Laguna Beach. He walks by something and bumps his elbow. Oh, I'm cut. Oh. <laughs> You're too good. Give yourself a round of applause. Komodo dragons. The cool thing, crazy thing about a Komodo dragon is it reminds us that life is not a video game. If a Komodo dragon bites you once, then your life is done. That's just it. That's all. So you're spending a lot of time with them, and you can't get bit. It's not like you can go like, oh, I screwed up the first time, but I'll do it again. That's it. And they're everywhere. And all you're carrying is a little stick to push their necks away, because you love these animals and you want to protect them on the planet Earth, but you also don't want them to bite your ankles, so you just kind of guide their necks away from you. So I, wasn't, I obviously was feeling very stressed during the day researching these Komodo dragons. And then I went into my hut. Mosquitoes have always liked me, so mosquitoes started to feast on my blood. That was not great for me. I wasn't sleeping that well. So on my last day with the Komodo dragons, I really needed a nap. Now forget the other thing I said about flossing your teeth. Don't forget it. Just move it to number two. This is the number one most important thing I say in my speech. There was a long dock like this, and it went out into the water. And I thought, I'm going to relax right now. I deserve some relaxation. I had a book with me. I sat down on the dock started to read the book, and I thought to myself, this is a very pleasant experience. I'm having a nice time. I did not have my neck pushing stick with me. That was a mistake. <laughs> thought, this is a nice time. You know what would be even nicer? Leaning back on one shoulder. It was nice. That's a comfortable way to sit if you ever get a chance. I said, this is great, but you know what would be nicer? Is if I laid all the way down like this. Like this. But I was smart. I said, no, uh, what I'll do is I'll read this page of the book like this. I'll put my face on the book. And then I'll, when it's done, I'll flip it over like this. I made it through exactly seven words of Sherlock Holmes before falling asleep. Now, there is a thing that is going to happen in your lives. A little voice is going to tap you on the back of your head. It went something like this. That's a bad idea. <laughs> and I said, the only reasonable thing to say, I'm taking a nap. Voice came in five minutes later. Seriously, that is a bad idea. I got up, stood up on the dock, 
realized that maybe it was a bad idea, turned around with no stick, nothing, and there, sauntering towards me slowly with drool dripping from its jaws, was this exact Komodo dragon. And I wish that I could tell you, because I'm here as an adventurer to tell you to love animals, I wish I could tell you that I was so brave, I ran past it, but I didn't. Instead, I looked at the Komodo dragon, the Komodo dragon looked at me, I realized I had no stick. I turned around, and I jumped in the water and swam away. <laughs> now, why do we tell all this? Why do we even have me come to the school? Here's why, here's why. One of these days very soon, your teachers are going to give you what I believe is the greatest gift a teacher can give a student. Truly the greatest gift. Here's what it is. A new car. No, no. The greatest gift a teacher could give a student. Your teacher is going to put it right in front of you. And it is going to be a blank piece of paper. Hear me out, hear me out, hear me out. Because what they're going to say is this. Here's a blank piece of paper. Make something. And they're going to give you a chance to create. Maybe you create something with words. Maybe you draw. Maybe you start coding for a video game that you're going to design. Maybe you start doing a storyboard for a comic you're going to write or a movie you're going to make. Maybe you start to build it into an origami wonder the likes of which the world has never seen. But you're going to create something. And when you decide to do that, you are going to need something. And you already have it. It's those seeds in your head. Now, one habit of mine, I never speak on behalf of people. But I'm going to speak on behalf of your teachers just this once and tell you that we collectively are so excited to see what you come up with and which stories you want to tell and what you create thanks to the seeds that are planted in your heads. And thank you for listening about the seeds that are planted in my head. You have been an incredible audience, and I like you very much. Any advice to people who want to be writers? Yes. I would say this. There are, look, yesterday, Neil Gaiman just came out with a class, a masterclass on that video series masterclass, right? There are 7,000 writing books by the best writers of all time. The, the number of options that a writer has right now to facilitate their dreams and, and to get them close to their dreams is higher than ever. And so the advice I would give is this, is like study, learn, be voracious, read a lot, and then write something where you would be comfortable selling it out of the trunk of your car. That's the, that's the goal that I have. So when I, when I sent this book to an agent, at that point, I was like, I would be comfortable selling this out of the trunk of my car. If this just doesn't come together, I would be comfortable, you know, because you feel awkward, right? If you were at a flea market and, and you popped open your trunk and you were selling books out of the back, you would, you would probably feel uncomfortable. If you can write something where you're like, this is good enough, this is close enough to what I was trying to do, where I would battle through that discomfort to sell it out of the trunk of my car, then you're probably onto something. And so like, that's the, that's the thing I encourage people is not, actually, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll modify that a little bit. This is for the young travelers who listen to the podcast. Mm -hmm. When you and I were traveling, 
you know, I, I didn't start making a full-time profession in travel writing for 10 years. I was subsidizing trips. These days, a traveler, you know, they leave their house for the first time ever and they go to Europe for two weeks. And by the end of the second week, they are trying to monetize the experience of traveling. And I would really deeply encourage people against that. I don't think that that is the best plan constantly. I would, I would encourage them instead to work really hard at the local bar for seven months and not spend any money and tell everyone, I can't go out. I'm sorry. I'm just not going out during this period because I'm saving money for travel. And then to go to travel for a while and not monetize it. So I probably don't make as much money as some of the travel writers that you and I grew up with who, you know, built their own websites and did all these things. But I do feel like I have a very deep sense of the world so that when I'm asked to go on, you know, television and uh, to speak about things, my frame of reference for travel is very broad. I was never racing around places. I was spending, I mean, I had a rule for myself that sounds so absurd now um, because our, you know, I'm, I'm older and my life has less disposable time. But until I was 33, I had a rule for myself that I wouldn't leave the country, would never leave the United States for less than a month at a time. And so, and I was, and I was traveling, you know, seven or eight months a year, kind of on my own dime. So I do think like people are in such a rush to monetize things and build a brand these days that they don't ever slow down and, and say like, I actually need experience first. I need to see the world. I work with influencers a lot in my day job and I work with young travel writers a lot in my day job. And I recognize now that one thing that I have that is an asset is I do have the authority of someone who slowed down and took a lot of time to see the world before I tried to turn that into a business or a career. Why do you think storytelling is so important to get people involved in outdoors and adventure? I think there is this, this transportive effect of a good story. We've seen it in all sorts of memoirs that have come out in the outdoor space over the past couple of years that they transport us and they inspire us. And I think that fiction does that often better than nonfiction. I think storytelling does it, put it that way. So it could be a nonfiction story like Cheryl Strayed with Wild, but, but I think that does it even better than reportage right? If I tell you about a river or if I tell you something is endangered, it has one series of effects on you. But if I share a story about that space, it has a different series of effects on you. And especially for kids, I think sharing with them joy for the world through adventure is really like really transfers. They get it and it makes them want to go out in the world. And the idea that I want to protect the world, you know, and the characters in the book want to protect the world makes them want to protect the world. If we want the next generation to continue to take care of our environment, the best thing we can do is show them the magic of nature by telling them stories of amazing adventures that take place in stunning places in the outdoors. We can help foster people of every age to get outside and whose inner child doesn't need a little wake up call. Thanks again to Steve Ramucci for coming on the show, for telling me you were going to be a famous children's author way back in the day and for doing the work you do to inspire and connect kids and urge them to get outside and read more books. Thanks also to the kids and teachers of Oak Creek Elementary School in Irvine. I laughed all day with you kids, so thanks so much. This podcast is produced by Annie Fassler and Chelsea Davis and supported by REI, a brand that helps you get outside and go on adventures in real life. 
Tune in week after next for an episode all about music, where I talk to an extremely successful musician and surfer about writing music and how the outdoors has influenced his music and his life. If you get a chance, please write us a review on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to this podcast. Some of them lately have really touched me, so I really appreciate it. And remember, wherever you are, some of the best adventures often happen when you follow your wildest ideas. Oh, 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 oh,